so largely was the Methodist movement owing to Whitfield that he was called the Calvinistic establisher of Methodism, and to the end of his life he remained the representative of it in the eyes of the learned world. Walpole, in his letters, speaks only once of Wesley in connection with the rise of Methodism, while he frequently speaks of Whitfield in connection with it. Mant, in his course of lectures against Methodism, speaks of it as an entirely Calvinistic affair. Neither the mechanism nor the force which gave rise to it originated with Wesley. Field preaching, which gave the whole movement its aggressive character, and fitted and enabled it to cope with the powerful agencies which were armed against it, was begun by Whitfield, whilst Wesley was dragged into it reluctantly. In the polite language of the day, Calvinism and Methodism were synonymous terms, and the Methodists were called another sect of Presbyterians. It was Calvinism and not Arminianism which originated, so far as any system of doctrine originated, the great religious movement in which the Methodist Church was born. While, therefore, Wesley is to be honored for his work in behalf of that church, we should not fail to remember the great Calvinist, George Whitfield, who gave that church her first beginnings in her most distinctive character. Had he lived longer and not shrunk from the thought of being the founder of a church far different would have been the results of his labor. As it was, he gathered congregations for others to form into churches and built chapels for others to preach in. It should also be said at this point that Wesley was a believer in witchcraft. Failure to believe in witches was looked upon by him as a concession to infidels and rationalists. Many of his biographers have passed over this subject in silence, although some of those most friendly to his cause have admitted that he stated his beliefs in words which cannot be misunderstood. In his journal, we read this report of a girl who was subject to fits. When old Dr. Alexander was asked what her disorder was, he answered, It is what formerly they would have called being bewitched. And why should they not call it so now? Because the infidels have hooted witchcraft out of the world, and the complacent Christians in large numbers have joined with them in the cry. Although Calvin lived two and a quarter centuries before Wesley, and had not the advantages of the scientific and intellectual progress that had been made during that time, we find no such strange credulity in him. His writings were not only free from witchcraft, but contained numerous warnings against such belief. The famous English Baptist Charles Haddon Spurgeon, 1834-1892, one of the world's greatest preachers, spoke as follows, I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I am asked what is my creed, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. And again, many of our Calvinistic preachers do not feed God's people. They believe election, but they do not preach it. They think particular redemption true, but they lock it in the chest in their creed and never bring it out in their ministry. They hold final perseverance, but they persevere in keeping quiet about it. They think there is such a thing as effectual calling, but they do not think they are called frequently to preach it. The great fault we find with them is that they do not speak right out what they believe. 
You could not know if you heard them fifty times what were the doctrines of the gospel or what was their system of salvation. And hence God's people get starved. When we come to a study of foreign missions, we find that this system of belief has been the most important agency in carrying the gospel to the heathen nations. St. Paul, whom the more liberal opponents of Calvinism admit to have been responsible for the Calvinistic caste of the theological thought of the Church, was the greatest and most influential of missionaries. If we call the role of heroes of Protestant missions, we find that almost without exception they have been disciples of Calvin. We find Carey and Martin in India, Livingstone and Moffat in Africa, Morrison in China, Patton in the South Seas, and a great host of others. These men professed and possessed a Calvinism which was not a static, but a dynamic. It was not their creed only, but their conduct. And in regard to foreign missions, Dr. F. W. Loister has said, Though like all our sister churches, we have reason in view of our unprecedented resources and the appalling needs of the heathen lands, to lament that we have not accomplished more, we may at least thank God that our venerated fathers made so good a beginning in establishing missions all over the world, that the Calvinistic churches today surpass all others in their gifts to this cause, and in particular that our own denomination has the unique honor and privilege of discharging her far-reaching responsibilities by actually confronting every one of the great non-Christian religions and preaching the gospel on more continents and among more nations, peoples, and tongues than any other evangelical church in the world. Although to some it may sound like an unwarranted exaggeration, we have no hesitation in saying that through the centuries Calvinism, fearlessly and wingingly polemic in its insistence upon the defense of sound doctrine, has been the real strength of the Christian church. The traditionally high standards of the Calvinistic churches in regard to ministerial training and culture, have borne a great harvest in bringing multitudes to the feet of Jesus, not in temporary excitement, but in perpetual covenant. Judged by its fruits, Calvinism has proved itself incomparably the greatest evangelizing force in the world. The enemies of Calvinism are not able honestly to confront the testimony of history. Certainly a glorious record belongs to this system in the history of modern civilization. None more noble can be found anywhere. It has ever been a mystery to the so-called liberals, says Henry Ward Beecher, that Calvinists, with what they have considered their harshly despotic and rigid views and doctrines, should always have been the staunchest and bravest defenders of freedom. The working for liberty of these severe principles in the minds of those that adopted them has been a puzzle. But the truth lies here. Calvinism has done what no other religion has ever been able to do. It presents the highest human ideal to the world and sweeps the whole road to destruction with the most appalling battery that can be imagined. It intensifies beyond all example the individuality of man and shows in a clear and overpowering light his responsibility to God and his relations to eternity. It points out man as entering life under the weight of a tremendous responsibility, having on his march toward the grave this one sole solace 
of securing heaven and of escaping hell. Thus the Calvinist sees man pressed, burdened, urged on by the most mighty influencing forces. He is on the march for eternity and is soon to stand crowned in heaven or to lie sweltering in hell, thus to continue forever and ever. Who shall dare to fetter such a being? Get out of his way. Hinder him not, or do it at the peril of your own soul. Leave him free to find his way to God. Meddle not with him or with his rights. Let him work out his own salvation as he can. No hand must be laid crushingly upon a creature who is on such a race as this, a race whose end is to be eternal glory or unutterable woe forever and ever. This tree, to adopt the eloquent paragraph of another, may have, to prejudiced eyes, a rough bark, a gnarled stem, and bows twisted often into knots shaped of ungraceful strength. But remember, it is not a willow wand of yesterday. These bows have wrestled with the storms of a thousand years. This stem has been wreathed with the red lightning and scarred by the thunderbolt. And all over its rough rind are the marks of the battle axe and the bullet. This old oak has not the plight, grace, and silky softness of a greenhouse plant, but it has a majesty above grace and a grandeur beyond beauty. Its roots may be strangely contorted, but some of them are rich with the blood of glorious battlefields. Some of them are clasped around the stakes of martyrs, some of them hidden in solitary cells and lonely libraries, where deep thinkers have mused and prayed, as in some acryptic pathmos, and its great taproot runs back until it twines in living and loving embrace around the cross of Calvary. Its bowls may be gnarled, but they hang clad with all that is richest and strongest in the civilization and Christianity of human history. As we survey this system, we feel as one sitting at the manual of a great organ. Our fingers touch the keys as stop after stop opens of the swell until the full course responds a great harmony. Calvinism touches all the music of life because it seeks the Creator first and above all and finds Him everywhere. Or again, we have been out upon the deep, the great celestial dome overhead, the wide expanse of eternity all around our souls, and in and above all there is God. Or again we stand, as it were, at the rifting of the rocks, with the landscape behind, the gorge before us, the mighty river of time flowing forth out of and into eternity, the sun in its zenith overhead, all ablaze with light and warmth, and in a whisper first our souls have echoed back the words, O oh, the depth of the riches. For Calvinism shows us God and traces his footsteps. God in all his greatness, majesty, wisdom, holiness, justice, love. Calvinism shows us God, high and lifted up, and our souls cry out again, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? This is no vain and empty eulogy of Calvinism. With the above facts and observations, every enlightened and impartial reader of history will agree. 
Furthermore, the author would say of this book what Dr. E. W. Smith in his book, The Creed of Presbyterians, said at the close of the chapter on the creed tested by its fruits, namely that these facts and observations are set forth not to stimulate denominational vanity, but to fill us with gratitude to God for that past history and that present eminence which should be to every one of us a vantage ground for nobleness and above all to kindle in our hearts a holy enthusiasm for that divine system of truth which under God has been the foremost factor in making of America and the modern world. In conclusion we would say that in this book the reader has found some very old-fashioned divinity, divinity as old as the Bible and as old and older than the world itself since this plan of redemption was hidden in the eternal counsels of God. No attempt has been made to cloak the fact that the doctrines advocated and defended in these pages are really wonderful and startling. They are enough to electrify the sleepy sinner who has taken it for granted all his life long that he can square matters with God any time he pleases, and they are sufficient to horrify the sleepy saint who has been deluding himself in the deadening response of a carnal religion. But why should they not cause astonishment? Does not nature teem with wonders? Why should not revelation? One needs to read but little to become aware that science brings to light many astonishing truths which an uneducated man finds it hard, if not impossible, to believe. And why should it not be so with the truths of revelation and the spiritually uneducated? If the gospel does not startle and terrify and amaze a man when presented to him, it is not the true gospel. But who was ever amazed at Arminianism with this doctrine that every man carves out his own destiny? It will not suffice merely to ignore or ridicule these doctrines as many are inclined to do. The question is, are these doctrines true? If they are true, why ridicule them? If they are not true, disprove them. We close with the statement that this great system of religious thought which bears Calvin's name is nothing more or less than the hope of the world. Appendix, page 433. The following material from Romans in Interpretive Outline by David N. Steele and Curtis C. Thomas contrast the five points of Arminianism with the five points of Calvinism in the clearest and most concise form that we have seen anywhere. It is also found in their smaller book, The Five Points of Calvinism. Both books are published by the Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company, Philadelphia. Mr. Steele and Thomas have served for several years as co-pastors of a Southern Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The Five Points of Arminianism and the Five Points of Calvinism given point by point first the Arminian doctrine then the Calvinistic doctrine. 1. Free will or human ability Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but he does not interfere with man's freedom 
Each sinner possesses a free will and his eternal destiny depends upon how he uses it. Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. The sinner has the power to either cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated or resist God's grace and perish. The lost sinner needs the spirit's assistance but he does not have to be regenerated by the spirit before he can believe for faith is man's act and precedes the new birth. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. Point one of the Calvinistic doctrine total inability or total depravity. Because of the fall man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind and deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free, it is in bondage to his evil nature. Therefore he will not, indeed he cannot, choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. Consequently, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes regeneration, by which the Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature. Faith is not something man contributes to salvation, but is itself a part of God's gift of salvation. It is God's gift to the sinner, not the sinner's gift to God. Point 2 of the Arminian Doctrine Conditional Election God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world was based upon his foreseeing that they would respond to his call. He selected only those whom he knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel. Election, therefore, was determined by or conditioned upon what man would do. The faith which God foresaw and upon which he based his choice was not given to the sinner by God. It was not created by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, but resulted solely from man's will. It was left entirely up to man as to who would believe and therefore as to who would be elected unto salvation. God chose those whom he knew would of their own free will choose Christ. Thus, the sinner's choice of Christ, not God's choice of the sinner, is the ultimate cause of salvation. Point 2 of the Calvinistic Doctrine Unconditional Election God's choice of certain individuals unto salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely on his own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith, repentance, etc. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected. These acts are the result, not the cause of God's choice. Election, therefore, was not determined by or conditioned upon any virtues, quality, or act foreseen in man. Those whom God sovereignly elected, he brings through the power of the Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. Thus God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. Point 3 of the Arminian Doctrine Universal Redemption or General Atonement 
Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all men and for every man, only those who believe on him are saved. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe, but it did not actually put away anyone's sin. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if a man chooses to accept it. Point 3 of the Calvinistic Doctrine Particular Redemption or Limited Atonement Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. His death was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. In addition to putting away the sins of his people, Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for their salvation, including faith which unites them to him. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to all for whom Christ died, therefore guaranteeing their salvation. Point 4 of the Arminian Doctrine The Holy Spirit can be effectually resisted. The Spirit calls inwardly all those who are called outwardly by the Gospel invitation. He does all that he can to bring every sinner to salvation. But inasmuch as man is free, he can successfully resist the Spirit's call. The Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until he believes. Faith, which is man's contribution, precedes and makes possible the new birth. Thus, man's free will limits the Spirit's in the application of Christ's saving work. The Holy Spirit can only draw to Christ those who allow him to have his way with them. Until the sinner responds, the Spirit cannot give life. God's grace, therefore, is not invincible. It can be and often is resisted and thwarted by man. Point 4 of the Calvinistic Doctrine The Efficacious Call of the Spirit or Irresistible Grace in addition to the outward general call to salvation which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without distinction, can be and often is rejected, whereas the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. By means of this special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. He is not limited in the work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is he dependent upon man's cooperation for success. The Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly to Christ. God's grace, therefore, is invincible. It never fails to result in the salvation of those to whom it is extended. Point 5 of the Arminian Doctrine Falling from Grace Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith, etc. All Arminians have not been agreed on this point. Some have held that believers are eternally secure in Christ, that once a sinner is regenerated, he can never be lost. Point 5 of the Calvinistic Doctrine Perseverance of the Saints All who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, and given faith by the Spirit are eternally saved. They are kept in faith by the power of Almighty God 
and thus persevere to the end. According to Arminianism, salvation is accomplished through the combined efforts of God, who takes the initiative, and man, who must respond, man's response being the determining factor. God has provided salvation for everyone, but his provision becomes effective only for those who, of their own free will, choose to cooperate with him and accept his offer of grace. At the crucial point, man's will plays a decisive role. Thus man, not God, determines who will be the recipients of the gift of salvation. According to Calvinism, salvation is accomplished by the almighty power of the triune God. The Father chose the people, the Son died for them, the Holy Spirit makes Christ's death effective by bringing the elect to faith and repentance, thereby causing them to willingly obey the gospel. The entire process, election, redemption, regeneration, is the work of God and is by grace alone. Thus God, not man, determines who will be the recipients of the gift of salvation. Arminianism, rejected by the Synod of Dort. This was the system of thought contained in the Remonstrance through the five points were not originally arranged in this order. It was submitted by the Armenians to the Church of Holland in 1610 for adoption but was rejected by the Synod of Dort in 1619 on the ground that it was unscriptural. Calvinism reaffirmed by the Synod of Dort. This system of theology was reaffirmed by the Synod of Dort in 1619 as the doctrine of salvation contained in the Holy Scriptures. The system was, at that time, formulated into five points in answer to the five points submitted by the Arminians and has ever since been known as the five points of Calvinism. This is the end of the book. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.